overview of possibly the main points of what the Buddha taught. And I'll try to relate it to your meditation practice. But as a matter of fact, one really in order to make meditation come to life, one needs to know the content, the essence, so to say, of the Buddha's direction and the essence of his understanding of the universe and the essence of his compassionate teaching so that whatever we experience in our meditation can be related to some of that. Now it takes more than a weekend to explain all of that, but a little bit of it may be able to come through. Now insight in Buddhist terminology means a very specific thing. It doesn't just mean getting to know something new or seeing something in a new way, although it can mean that too. But when we speak about insight in the Buddhist way, there are three factors involved, only three, always the same three, and always seen from the perspective of the individual person embracing the whole of existence. Now these three factors are impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. For those of you who have read the Buddhist books, Anicca Dukkha very easy to say. Most people who have heard about it for a while agree to it wholeheartedly and it doesn't make the slightest bit of difference in their lives. And this is where the experience comes in. Now I have thought I'd like to talk to you tonight a little bit about the second one in Pali Dukkha, D-U-K-K-H-A. And because it's nice and short and embraces everything that exists and doesn't just mean pain, grief and lamentation, suffering and worry, fear, it means all that, but it means everything else also, I think I'd like to use that word in Pali as an exception. It's not necessary to learn a foreign language in order to understand the Buddhist teaching. But this particular word, two syllables, much easier to say than unsatisfactoriness, and it is totally embracing. We all have it, but we don't treated properly and we don't understand it in its 
all its ramifications. And what's worst of all is we dislike it. We dislike everything that doesn't seem to be pleasant for us. And that's the biggest mistake we can make. Because it is the one and only teacher that we can rely on. You see, when we have difficulties in life, we have a chance to learn something. But what we usually do is something entirely different. The first thing that is most popular in our treatment of anything that is unsatisfactory to us is blaming an outside source. And that outside source can be quite justifiably unpleasant, but that does not mean that our unhappiness has to be connected to it. So we blame our partner, the weather, the boss, the economy, the government, the war, television, the neighbors, well, we've all done it. The list is probably more extensive than that, but you can all make up your own list. So then, if you keep on doing that, of course, there's no learning situation involved. It all remains the same forever after, because there's always something else that is unsatisfactory when the war is over, the peace will be totally unsatisfactory. So there's no end to this. So then maybe we think, ah, oh, must be me. And we start blaming ourselves. Well, that doesn't work either because it makes the unsatisfactoriness even worse. We call that double dukkha. That doesn't have any effect at all, other than a negative one. Then, of course, we have other ways and means of dealing with dukkha. We, get, we become very sorry for ourselves. And that's also quite a, a popular one. And if we don't stop it in time, it can actually degenerate into depression. And depression can degenerate into actually being a quite sick. So being sorry for oneself is, is quite dangerous. We've all done it. And we've probably noticed that it doesn't help either. It doesn't change the unsatisfactoriness into satisfactoriness. On the contrary, it makes it a little worse. Then we, of course, we have that uh, idea that if we move away from that situation, which we don't like, then everything will be fine. Now that is exactly what we do in the meditation 
when we get an unpleasant feeling and don't notice that we have already moved. So when we sit in meditation and the feeling becomes very unpleasant and we don't take time out to check it out in the way I have explained those four steps, but impulsively move, that is our usual way of dealing with the unpleasantness, getting away from it, changing the partner, changing the job, changing the diet, changing the spiritual path, uh, trying to vote for a different party, whatever it may be, changing the country, moving somewhere else, going from the city to the country, from the country to the city, and so on. Change, outer change, outside of ourselves. Now that helps for a little while. If you've had unpleasant feeling in the sitting position and moved, it helped for a little while. And what happened then? It hurt again, didn't it? That's exactly the way it is. It becomes just as unsatisfactory as it was before. So one's got to move again. And as we do that over and over again, we're quite busy. And... Uh, <laughs> and well engaged in activity so we don't have time to actually investigate the whole matter we're just too busy moving changing that's another way of dealing with it and of course no end result possible since it's uh, continuous movement we sometimes when we look at some situation that is very unsatisfactory for us and realize that we have contributed to it in some manner or form, we may actually make up our minds not to repeat that mistake, whatever it was that we think we made. But yet again, we haven't seen the truth of Dukkha. We haven't come near what it really means. And this is one of the things that happen to so many people who start meditating. They stop again. They still think, it's that on and off affair, they still think that one can find total satisfaction, happiness, peacefulness, in worldly conditions, either through making more money or finding nicer friends or having a sailboat or whatever it is that we've figured out is going to do it, or traveling around the world or um, going to a, a, a beach resort or even going to a monastery. That's going to do it. Somebody said the other night, something like must be paradise no answer necessary anyway going somewhere doing something um, because it is that hope in us that we're going to find the answer somewhere and we also have the 
idea very often that if we made some mistakes and who hasn't that if we don't repeat those mistakes if we just handle it a little bit better just answer a little better or react a little more um, easygoing or do something a little better it's all going to work out perfectly this is something that we try to we see that in our unsatisfactoriness and think that well if we do that it's going to work out now this is why the meditation stops then if we see our dukkha perfectly and see it really we would never stop we would never stop to try and find the transcendental way out of dukkha but as long as we still think the world must have it somewhere we have such nice sunrises and sunsets and there are such nice people in this world and the food tastes good and the flowers are, are blossoming and the weather is nice and everything's all right if I just handle it right I'll do it as long as we think anywhere near that that's when we stop meditating because meditation well it takes time away from our search for that perfect feeling a perfect situation it takes time away from making more money it takes time and energy away from that search for happiness and yet that's what we're all doing we have a search for happiness rightly so and as long as we think that somewhere sometime we're going to find it so long we are running after a phantom I usually call it the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow it doesn't exist it's not there and this is what the insight into dukkha actually means that one day we understand that while we can have lots of pleasures in this life and lots of pleasant situations and lots of pleasant feelings all of them are going to disappear and we have to renew them over and over again and if we depend upon our experiences and depend upon our sense contacts seeing hearing tasting touching smelling and thinking six senses in the buddhist teaching <coughs> if we depend upon those to bring us peace and happiness when we see that 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 is a fallacy that's when we think meditation is really important now obviously you've all thought it's important otherwise you wouldn't be here but are you still going to think it's important three weeks from now at five o'clock in the morning or whenever it's quiet in your house according to the papers you filled out it's doubtful isn't it today it's important but why is it important again there are 
misconception about it. Is it important because it's supposed to give us something? It's supposed to give us peace and happiness? That will never work either. It can only work if we are ready and willing to give up. Now what do we have to give up in meditation? The first thing we have to give up is thinking, huh? Difficult enough. Really difficult. Giving up is always difficult. Trying to get things is an ingrained habit we all have. But trying to give things is not such an ingrained habit. Here, we don't only have to give, we've got to give up. So, it all connects together. If we believe, and most people do, because that's the human situation, that the world is going to answer our needs and our wants by giving us that complete peacefulness and happiness that we all think we really should have, and there's no reason why we shouldn't, if we still believe that the world can do it, then we want to get. We want to get something from the world, and if the world has failed to do that lately, we want to get it from meditation, or we want to get it from both sides. That's the most common one. And that just doesn't happen. There's nothing to get. There's everything to give up. So the first thing in meditation is giving up thinking. And because we can only be aware of the fact that we are somebody when we think, that's why it's so difficult. I think, therefore, I am. Descartes. That is what we all believe. And because our thinking process supports this ego illusion, this ego uh, concernedness, this egocentricity, therefore it's so difficult to give up. Now, nobody should be surprised that it's difficult to give up. We should be very happy if we can even give it up for a moment. There's more to give up than just the thinking. There's also the expectation. Now this is what I've described as what we expect the world to do for us. And because expectation is always connected with disappointment, we usually have disappointments in this life. I don't think anybody gets away without them. In fact, it's impossible. Well, the same applies to meditation. No expectations. That's also something I'm expecting to get something from it. What we actually have to do is to be present awake and aware and just note 
note what's going on and recognize that it can at times bring peacefulness when we are actually concentrated but at other times we can note the impermanence of everything that arises and as soon as we get a little bit of understanding within of this impermanent thinking process the impermanence of each feeling the impermanence of each concentration the impermanence of the breath we get an inkling why unsatisfactoriness is one of the three characteristics of all of existence nothing can be kept everything just trickles through our fingers and disappears that is the basic unsatisfactoriness that is the dukkha which exists in us in the microcosm and in the whole of the universe as a macrocosm nothing remains all changes now as long as we dis- resist and dislike that so long we're going to have dukkha under all circumstances as long as we're trying to hang on to that what we like and get rid of that what we don't like so long there's going to be unsatisfactoriness in our lives to get rid of that idea that we can actually change the law of nature that means we come to a feeling of peacefulness the law of nature which is dukkha unsatisfactoriness because of that constant change is something that we don't want to live with we have this dislike of the law of nature in all its aspects that's why we pollute our environment that's why we don't take care of our forests we don't believe in the law of nature for some odd reason we don't remember from morning to night that everything is constantly in flux we want to hang on and keep nobody can do it it's impossible and because we're trying to do the impossible we're trying to keep that which we like get rid of that which we don't like and keep it away forever and keep that what we like forever because we're trying the impossible we have no peace it's impossible to be peaceful when one is trying to do something which nobody can do and yet mankind has done that ever since we have record of humanity and we're still all doing it so this is another thing we've got to let go of trying to do the impossible and trying to do the impossible appears to be quite justifiable because everybody else is doing it too now is that a good enough reason to do it everybody is doing it we don't take enough time out to investigate what we're really trying to accomplish in this life when we investigate at length and in depth 
will see that some of that is absurd. And this is what we can do in a retreat such as this. There's plenty of time during the day when we won't sit here in the hall in meditation. We can use some of that time for contemplation. Contemplation, and we'll do it together too tomorrow, a contemplation, but I'd like to mention it now. Contemplation differs from meditation. In meditation, I've already explained to you, we try to be one-pointed. We try to stay in one spot and first of all try to get some calm and also because the calm is being interrupted gain some insight. But in contemplation we can look at one of the features which we know are true in the world and see whether we're actually having a personal relationship to that. Now one of the features which are true in the world is constant change, impermanence. It's very important to have a look at that and see whether we can notice it in ourselves and whether we are agreeable to it or whether it has already caused us some grief. And if it has caused us some grief, if we can see that in ourselves, then it will be a great awakening because we will recognize that that which is a law of nature is causing us grief. And yet all of us are part of that nature. We all belong in it. We all have are subject to it and have all the characteristics of it. And yet, we are allowing the law of nature to cause us grief because we lose something we want or we can't keep away that which we don't want. Unsatisfactoriness. The two are totally connected. The Buddha said, there's only one thing I teach, and that suffering and its end to reach. Now, dukkha is often translated as suffering, but it gives a wrong idea about it because we could easily say, suffering? Well, I'm not suffering, I'm all right. Nothing's happening to me. But it doesn't just mean suffering. It means our constant restlessness, our constant anxiety that inner feeling of not being totally fulfilled. That's what it means. And not being totally fulfilled or totally satisfied, contented, peaceful, under all circumstances all the time, that is Dukkha. And that is something that is very much hidden from us, particularly in an affluent society where we can so very often gratify our desires. Because dukkha is hidden by the fact that we can get very often what we want and forget to see 
that we can't keep it. This takes contemplation. This takes a delving into one's own life and experience and see whether this is true. And only when we see Dukkha in its completeness will we be willing to use meditation as a clearing house for our mind so that eventually we can transcend the worldly aspect of Dukkha. Meditation is a clearing house for the mind. It is an automatic purification system, but only if we do it all the time. Here, of course, in the weekend retreat, we will be doing it a lot of the time, but that's not enough. It's got to become part of one's life so that we have this purification system on hand all the time. We have immediate results from meditation, which I'd like to enumerate for you, so that if you can remember them, it may help you to instill in yourself the urge to actually do it every day. Some vaguer urgency is one of the factors which are needed to be on a spiritual path. Because most of the people we know and most of the people we meet are doing exactly the opposite. So we have to have that inner urgency. The first benefit that we get, whether we become concentrated or not, has nothing to do with that is that we are actually overcoming our innate procrastination, our innate sloth and torpor of not doing what we know is good for us by sitting down to start meditation. We're overcoming this lassitude and this um, being not very determined, but maybe doing it tomorrow. So we have that as an antidote for that characteristic, which is common to all human beings. The second benefit which we'll get immediately is because we have the intention to do something good, we're making good karma. Karma is intention. So we have an immediate result of making good karma. We also have the immediate result of purification even if we only concentrate for one moment. One moment of concentration is one moment of purification. Because at that one moment we couldn't possibly be negative. The more moments we pile on top of each other, the more purification takes place. And yet it hinges upon our understanding of Dukkha. 
if we can't see that being a human being no matter how fortunate our situation may be is difficult it's never easy to be a human being we try without results we always try to get it easy we even have it in our language take it easy it doesn't work it never has and never will the buddha's enlightenment statement are the four noble truths and the first of the four noble truths is the noble truth of dukkha and the second noble truth is the noble truth of the cause of dukkha and you know there's only one cause makes it very nice and simple we we'll just get rid of that one cause and we'll never have dukkha again that cause is craving wanting which includes wanting to get rid of of course everybody can check that out for themselves and we'll see whether that's true that's a very interesting contemplation I'd like you to try that out maybe tomorrow morning or even tonight see whether there's anything in your life which you're not totally satisfied with anything whatever it may be even if it's only a small matter and then drop the wish that it were different for just a second and see how the unsatisfactoriness of it disappears like magic naturally the wish comes right back so you have to do it again until you actually believe it that you don't have to have a different it's okay the way it is i'd like to repeat that it's okay the way it is that's the only way to get peace how simple and how cheap <laughs> the absurdity of the human situation is sometimes overwhelming and we've got to see it in ourselves try it out it's a moment's work is there anything in your life that you're not totally satisfied with that creates a little bit a little bit or a lot of unsatisfactoriness of unhappiness of dislike anything small medium large and then drop the whole thing it's okay and see what comes up peace it's okay and when you've done that you've proven the buddha correct the first two noble truths have then become your own understanding of dhamma and this is what learning the facts of a spiritual path actually means there are the guidelines there are in this tradition theravada tradition something like 17 and a half thousand discourses by the buddha and equally many commentaries and double as many sub commentaries 
But what good does it all do? When you can actualize it in yourself, then the Dhamma has taken hold. The Dhamma means the teaching of the Buddha, it also means the law, the law of nature, the truth. It has so many translations, so we'll just call it the Dhamma. When that happens, then you can see the world in a little different light. And then you know that the outer changes are nothing but results of inner changes. And the inner changes take place in all of us. Now, with the meditation as a general statement, letting go, giving up, is one of the most important aspects. Giving up whatever it is that happens to be prominent in the mind, that appears to be so important, but it will still be there Tuesday, I guarantee. And you can pick it all up again and stick it all back in the mind. Let go. Let it all go. It's all going on beautifully. The whole world is continuing with all its difficulties without our intervening, without our thinking about it. Here's a chance to let go of that. To make sure that you realize that even when the concentration is only momentary, you're already gaining that benefit the benefit of that momentary purification. The other benefits, I have already outlined them earlier today, but I'll uh, repeat them now. Because we have to, in meditation, substitute the thinking with attention on the breath, we learn the substitution process. If we don't learn the substitution process, we don't have a chance at purification in daily life. The substitution process is exactly that, what we need in our daily living <clears throat> to get away from our worries and fears and dislikes and rejections and substitute with that what is positive. If we don't do that in the meditation, it's very difficult to learn it otherwise. It gives us an inkling of our habitual mind patterns which we can then learn to interrupt because we go back to the breath. And as we learn to interrupt them, we also can do that in daily living. The meditation has a direct relationship to what happens in our daily lives. And that direct relationship we have to notice, we have to be aware of it, because then the meditation becomes important. It becomes as such an important feature that we wouldn't be without it anymore. The more people in this world would meditate, the easier it would be to live in this world. So maybe we can be some, we can be people that help to make it a little easier to live in this world 
Dukkha is our best teacher, the only reliable one. If, for instance, you sit here and your back aches and your knees ache and uh, you can't concentrate and you think it's uh, pretty difficult and you come to the teacher and say, you know, it's too difficult, I can't do this, I don't feel good, it's awful, I want to go home. Teacher's going to say, well, you know, if that's what you want to do, I'm sorry about it, but, well, then you have to go. Now, look, if we are to sit there and everything is hurting, you can't concentrate, and you say, oh, I've got so much dukkha, you know, and then you say to dukkha, you know, I don't like this, I'm going home. Then dukkha is going to say, that's fine, but I'm coming with you. <laughs> the only reliable teacher. It's the one that you can always find. It's always there. And only when real insight arises does it go away for a while. Otherwise, totally reliable, faithful, very faithful. <laughs> now that faithfulness needs to be used in the right way. It needs to be used as a learning experience. And that's what it's for. See, this is what we do wrong. As I said in the beginning, what we do is we blame others, we blame ourselves, we try to run away from it, get somewhere else, we get depressed, we are sorry for ourselves, all those things. That's not the way to look at it. The way to look at it is strictly as a learning experience. And when that happens, eventually we'll be grateful to it. We'll actually say, thank you. Now I've seen what happened. When that happens, when we say thank you to the suffering, the pain, the unsatisfactoriness, we have understood Dukkha. So see whether you're saying thank you to it already. If not, look at it again. It's the one thing that eventually convinces us that existence can never provide what we're looking for. Existence can only provide existence. That's all. It can never provide constant peace, constant joy, constant happiness. And only dukkha, it's the only thing that unsatisfactoriness, which everybody experiences in all sorts of ways, in relationships and physical ways and all sorts of things, only that can show it to us. We haven't got enough understanding otherwise unless we're shown. Buddha compared people to four kinds of horses. He said, there is a horse that all you have to do is hold the reins and move them very slightly and it will immediately respond. Then there is the horse that you have to really pull the reins before it will respond. 
Then there's one where you have to actually use the spurs before it will respond. And then there's one where you have to use the whip. And of course there's a fifth one. You can do what you like, it won't respond at all. People are like that. And he said, the first kind, they just have to hear about all the misery in the world. They just have to hear about all these horrible happenings far removed and they start practicing. Another kind, they have to actually see it with their own eyes, have to see the misery. And then they start practicing. Another kind, the misery has to happen in their own family. And then they'll do something. And the fourth kind, it has to happen to themselves. Most of us are like that. And then, of course, there's a fifth kind. It doesn't matter what happens. They don't practice at all. So that's why we are like these horses. So the misery is that which makes us practice. And then when everything is fine again and everything works and nobody is nasty and and nobody is... uh, uh, bothering us and uh, so then it all falls by the wayside again. This is what is needed to understand that it's always there because the most pleasant would be a great help to us. The Buddha said that this level, this uh, human level, is the very best level to become enlightened because we have enough pleasures that make it quite acceptable but we have so much dukkha that eventually we see it and will practice. So there's a balance of both. To understand dukkha doesn't mean that we shouldn't have any pleasurable sensations, not at all. But what it means is that we no longer search them constantly. We accept them with gratitude when they come and we see them pass away with equanimity and we don't look for them all the time. We look for that which may have the depth and profundity of showing us that the world cannot ever give us the total satisfaction we all want. It's only possible to see that with insight when there has been meditation. See the mind, and you've had now sufficient hours to be aware of this, the mind is pretty wild in its natural state. You can compare it to ocean waves, which are the thoughts like ocean waves, which are going high. And you're sitting under this ocean wave, and all you can see is the water. All that's happening is the thoughts. So then we have to wait for this ocean to become calm again. And when the surface of the water is quite calm, we can look into the depths. And when we can see 
sand and coral and fish and whatever is available to be seen. The same with this thinking mind. As soon as the mind becomes calm and there is this calm surface, we can look into the depths. That's why we have to try to get to the calm state and I'll talk more about calm in order to gain insight. But while we're still trying to become calm, and this is all what we're doing at this time, we can use whatever arises, thought or feeling, to gain some insight into ourselves. And as you look at what arises, remember the three characteristics of all that exists impermanence you can see the breath is impermanent the thought is the feeling is unsatisfactory because it comes and it goes you can't keep it no matter how nice it is even if it were nice at this stage it probably isn't so you can see the dukkha without even trying and that it doesn't have a substance to it because you can't get a hold of it so the first two things are easy to see the impermanence of all that arises and the unsatisfactoriness of it because actually what you'd like to do and what we'd all like to do is to be completely calm and sit here quite calm and totally unperturbed and doesn't matter what happens we're just completely at ease and totally concentrated And what happens really? Well, the opposite, doesn't it? Thoughts and feelings and ideas and uh, dislikes and all the rest of it. So that in itself is already dukkha. And what does it show us also? It shows us we want one thing and we get another. Who is the owner of all this? That is a very important contemplation. We want one thing and get something else. Well, who, who is doing all this? Who is this person that's doing all that? And why, if it was really me and my thinking, why don't I do exactly what I want to do? This needs to be investigated. That's the third one, the corelessness. But that needs a fair bit of contemplation. And we can experience all this in the meditation. So although we have to get to a calm mind, there's just no getting around that, that has to come if we want to gain real insight. In the meanwhile, in the meantime, while this is going on, we can use what arises in that way. There's one other thing I would like to mention which I uh, forgot when I started today possibly because the time element of the time element because I was trying to do it very quickly but I think you're all aware of the fact that we want to be silent we want to keep noble silence now some of you of course for you this first course but those of you who've done courses before know this now this is not supposed to create more dukkha than we have already it is supposed to give us a chance to see ourselves in a clearer and less 
interrupted way. It's a journey inward. When we talk, we are going out, outward. Now obviously you can always ask questions here in the hall and we have, um, you know, the personal discussions uh, with each other and if there's anything that is of a physical nature, well, there's George in the kitchen that can be uh, contacted or be, yes. Uh, if there's anything that is happening that you need to discuss but other than that, don't talk to each other. And please do not compare your meditation experiences. First of all, it's a, uh, it's an, sometimes people can then be envious that you're doing it better than they are doing it, or you get uh, unsure whether you're doing it right. If you have meditation experiences, please discuss them with me. That's what I'm supposed to be here for. And it is really important to keep silent for this um, weekend so that the inner experience can be understood, can be seen for what it is. And if it's difficult to be silent, if one feels very much alone, look at that. Why? Do I need someone to support me? Why? What is it that I'm lacking? Investigate whatever comes up and ask the question. And every answer you get is a new question. Because the bottom line, I'll give you the bottom line, but please don't use it without going through all the other answers. The bottom line is always ego. That's where it all ends up in. But it's useless to think and say that, I'm only giving that as a sort of like a hint, unless one has seen every step on the way, because otherwise we can't get back to it another time. It's not that we're so egocentric, it's that we are living under an illusion of an identity and entity which is separate from everybody else. And this illusion, being separate from everybody else, which is supported through an optical illusion, that brings with it all the difficulties. So when there is a difficulty, when I don't like this or don't like that, then try to investigate it and question it and see how far it goes with the answers. So the silence that we keep is extremely helpful in order to have a better understanding of our own reactions, which otherwise we mightn't even have. And these reactions give us a great um, insight so that we know where our difficulties are. We may not be able to get rid of them right away, but at least we know where they are. And that's already a big step. The formula is recognition, no blame, change. That's enough for this evening. You have now a chance to ask questions at whatever you like to ask about. It doesn't have to be about what I talked about. It can be about your meditation, whatever else.
pleasantness in this life, then how can we how can we guarantee that we won't become attached to that and just want the pleasantness to continue? So if, if we recognise that it's only momentary, momentary and it will go away, there's still a danger that we might want it and want it to be repeated. That's exactly what we have to recognise. That danger is exactly what we need to recognise. Because that is exactly what all of humanity is doing. That's what we spend our time and money on. Whichever way we like to get it. Either time or money. We want to get the pleasant, get rid of the unpleasant. We can't help but see beautiful sunsets. They're there. They can be seen. But to get attached to sunsets is pretty absurd, isn't it? So people get attached to other things. Yes. Um, what about the, um, the happiness from engaging to other people? Um, Helping other people. Yes. yes. Can you still hear in the back there? Or are you having difficulty? No, it's okay, isn't it? No, I didn't, didn't hear the question. Didn't hear the question. What about the happiness that you get from helping other people? Uh, that is the, the happiness which is actually realistic and which has a basis and which helps us on the spiritual path because that is the good karma we can make. So there, when we have that possibility to do that, that is something that is actually not coming through the senses, but it's coming through our making good karma. Usually we're looking for pleasure through the senses. What else? Anything else? What's forgotten the difference? Libel, libel, past, future, fantasy, uh, they're not fixed labels. You can use anything you like. Uh, I was giving them as an example. Past, future, fantasy, hope, uh, memory, uh, fear, worry, anger, boredom, nonsense. That's a very good one. <laughs> hmm? Unnecessary. But you can make up your own. I was giving examples. What about some occasional just experience that you don't understand? Anymore? You don't understand the thought that has come up or what? Thought or picture or... Well, it's fantasy. That's called fantasy. Yeah. When, when you are trying to become calm, there's, there are some things which are valuable when they arise because they can bring insight. And uh, those that can come up and bring insight have to be connected in some manner or form with oneself. I mean, people sometimes see pictures of nice um, landscapes. Oh, it's useless but it has to be connected with oneself, then there can be value in insight. 
But if it's something that doesn't seem to make sense, well, then it's just fantasy. Depends what it is. There's possibility of gaining insight from some of them. You might see um, some vision, some like people you know, or your parents who's dead, or some, you know. And if, if you and if you take that thing and start to think about it, maybe there's something to to glean from it. I don't no, not usually. People you know. A parent who's dead, if that death, if you see that person dead, that could help to become acquainted with your own death. Or it can become, you can become acquainted with your um, um, wish to be more loving and compassionate. That could be possible. But if it's people that you know, no, that's not very helpful. But it has to come, that insight has to come spontaneous. If it doesn't come spontaneously, there's no insight in it. Then it's a thought process. And insight is not a thought process. It's spontaneous arising of an understanding. It's not discursive thinking or thought process. This is maybe something that I should now mention once more about the contemplation which I have said would be useful to do. If you contemplate, for instance, the dukkha that you have known, it's not trying to think about it, but it's a make it arise as a, as a factor in your life and see what an inner response comes to that. That's contemplation, it's an inner response. It's not trying to figure it out. And the same with your with uh, your example of a picture is not thinking thinking out has to be an inner response. Mm. Um, it's, it's very tempting if you, if you get a, a picture or whatever to then turn it into a contemplation rather yes. than a meditation. Well, if if there's an inner response to it that brings insight, which is either impermanence, dukkha, or, or corelessness, which means death also, that can be useful, yes. It can be useful. But if it's discursive thinking, it's totally useless. And it has to be a picture which is totally connected with yourself. And uh, preferable, not even apparent, on you, but you yourself. Then it's uh, definitely uh, of value because it may show something. And the inner response is um, not a thought process. The inner response is a feeling which then has an explanation in the mind. Also, if you sit down and you think you want to concentrate on concentration, on the calm rather than insight, mm-hmm. can it be a distraction to label something? Can, can you not just drop it? And go back to the that depends. If one has meditated for some time, the thoughts that arise can be like clouds in the background. They seem they can have the one can have the feeling as if they are clouds in the back of the head. They need no labeling. Uh, in fact, the labeling would be uh, a disturbance. 
because that is already upachara samadhi, that's already neighborhood concentration. But as long as a thought is solid and really takes one away from the meditation, it, labeling is extremely helpful. And it also helps to drop it, of course. Not at all, because while the thoughts are solid and are interrupting, really interrupting and can be labeled, the calm is a long way off. It's when the thoughts become like clouds and they seem to be passing in the back of the head. I mean, they don't, but it appears to be like that. That's when there's no labeling. That's when one is getting near to the concentration. And they don't have a content then. That what I'm saying about the back of the head? Yeah. No, no. It just seems to be at the same time as as watching the breath. It all seems to happen uh, simultaneously, and uh, labeling is not necessary then. What witnessing and labeling is, is very closely connected. Because a witness knows what's going on, otherwise he's not a witness. But usually, this is most likely, you're a witness straight after the fact. Well, then you're not a very good witness. Better to have a witness to the fact. Try it out. <laughs> yes. With that uh, uh, state of the, the thoughts being like they act out in the back of the head, could you talk about the difference between that and that sort of mindless state where it's a little bit spaced out and the thoughts are coming in and you don't really have much awareness of it? Spaced out? I'm not sure what spaced out means. Well, I know it's an expression, but I'm not sure what to do with like it. A, um, Oh, I see. All right, okay, I understand. Where thoughts come to come, but the attention is not on something specific when when the thoughts don't come. Yeah, sort of a mindless... Yeah, well, that's drowsy. Yes, one should immediately open one's eyes and start all over again, if that's the case. No, uh, this one where the thoughts go sort of like clouds in the background is... It's neighborhood concentration. It, as, it seems as if one is watching the breath quite nicely, quite concentratedly, and yet at the same time there's something going on that one can't even put one's name, uh, a name on, which doesn't, so that the attention on the breath is not deep. But the attention is there. The, uh, the one where the thoughts go in the back of the head is a step further advanced from the con- in the concentration. The labeling is, when the labeling is necessary, that means that the concentration gets constantly interrupted by thoughts. And then it's absolutely essential to label. 
so that one gets a grip on the, on, the, on the thing. And besides, the mind gets tired of it. The mind gets tired of saying, ah, oh, this is another nonsense one, and here's a fantasy one, and this is... <laughs> and the mind gets so tired of that, that eventually, if one persists and perseveres, the mind says, well, all right, then, okay, I'll concentrate. And then it does concentrate. But that is the, that is the way... Uh, the, so the labeling is the first step. The next step is neighborhood concentration, upachara samadhi, which means that there are still thoughts that are going and coming, but they, you can't even put your finger on it what it means, and you're still on the breath at the same time. So that's the next step. And then one has to use a bit of more determination to get past that one. And then one can really stay on the breath. Right? Okay. Is the same analytical meditation, the same contemplation, or what's the difference? Say it again. Analytical meditation. It's the same as meditation. Uh, I've never heard that word. You didn't hear the question. Yeah. Is analytical meditation the same as contemplation? Um, analytical contemplation. I have never heard the word. Meditation is always when you receive teachings. And then ah, meditate yes. to analyze them. Ah, analyze them. Analyze them. Hmm. Hmm. Possibly the same thing, yes. I wouldn't call contemplation analytical. I would say, I would describe it, well, you know, words are, you know, limited. <laughs> I would describe contemplation as putting one's mind on an important subject that you would get in the teaching and see how I personally respond to that, what that particular thing means in my life and whether I've actually noticed the truth of it already or whether I dislike the truth of it. In other words, a personal response to it. An analytical, um, analytical exposition of it is highly intellectual. Yes, it's too intellectual. Because the meditative and the contemplative way are <coughs> both not intellectual, but they still use the mind. Not being intellectual doesn't mean that one doesn't use the mind. It means the understood experience. Now here when we look at something, let's say death, right? Somebody says, well, you have to look at your own death. All right? So then death is a factor. And then one has to look to see whether one is actually taking it into account or whether one tries to forget it or whether one has something against it. And if so, why? So this is a personal response to, for instance, death or a personal response to these four aspects of the khandas, of the aggregates which I mentioned, which brings an inner experience. So contemplation is not analytical, no. And in fact, analytical is, well, it's an intellectual step-by-step uh, -step process which can remain totally intellectual, I would say. It could, it doesn't have to, but it could. You know. So uh, we don't, yes. When you talk about um, being unhappy with external circumstances in your life, and just getting to the point of saying it's okay the way it is. Are they not 
Yes, absolutely. And that's the same thing as changing your position in meditation. I'd like to teach you to make connections. First, you have pain in your leg, right? And then you say, all right, that's happened this way. This is the causes. It comes first the contact, then the feeling, then the perception, then the reaction. Now, I'm going to take my mind off it and put it back on the breath. Okay, wonderful for one minute. And then it comes again. And you try again, and you try maybe three, four times. And the fifth time, you admit to yourself that you can't handle it. And the mind says, no, it's too much for me. I'm going to move. Okay? So you admit to yourself that it's this particular situation of the pain in the knee is too much. I'm going to move. Exactly the same happens in one's life. One tries and tries. And then one day, one may have to admit to oneself, which is perfectly... Um, right to do that one isn't up please put the attention on the breath for just a few moments Now think of yourself as your own best friend, caring and concerned, loving and compassionate, filling yourself from head to toe with the sincerity of friendship and surrounding yourself with a feeling of love and compassion. such as a best friend would do. And now think of yourself as the best friend of the person sitting nearest you in this hall. Caring, concerned and loving, fill him or her with the depth of your friendship from head to toe with the warmth from your heart and surround him or her with your love and compassion. Giving the best that your heart can offer. And now think of yourself as the best friend of everyone here. Feel like a best friend would, wanting to help, caring, concerned about the friend's well-being.
fill everyone with your friendship. Embrace everyone with love. Now think of yourself as the best friend of your parents, whether they're still alive or not. A best friend who cares and wants to help. Fill them with that friendship, with your appreciation. Embrace them with your love. Now think of yourself as the best friend of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. The best friend who looks after them, cares for them, and loves them. Think of all your friends and be their best friend. Let your heart reach out to them, filling them with the sincerity and depth of your friendship, the reliability, faithfulness. Embrace them with your love without expecting them to do the same.
think of all those people whom you meet here and there, neighbors, people at work, in the shops, in the offices, on the street, in public transport. postmen, tram conductors, anyone whom you meet now and then or daily. Let them all arise before your mind's eye and be their best friend. Open your heart to them. Let them be truly part of your life. through your love and concern. If there's any person in your life whom you don't like, whom you find difficult to be with, who may have put obstacles in your way, become that person's best friend also, so that there's no blockage in your own heart. And recognize that person's difficulties, giving him or her the depth and sincerity of your friendship, your love and your compassion, making another friend. Now let the feelings of friendship, of love and compassion, of care and concern flow out of your heart to people around here first, those that are near, let it flow into their houses, into their hearts. And then further afield to the cities and towns and villages. Covering the whole of Australia. Making friends. Being part of one huge family. And then let it flow further. Let the friendship, 
the love and the concern flow across the ocean to peoples everywhere. Whatever nation, whatever religion, whatever color or creed, make friends, be their friend, consider their difficulties, give them your love, all of them, no discrimination, no difference, family of mankind. Feel the strength of that love and friendship and care emanating from your heart and reaching out to people everywhere. Around this small globe of ours, Put your attention back on yourself and feel the joy and happiness and peacefulness that comes from loving and giving. Fill yourself with that happiness. Surround yourself with love. feeling at ease and protected. May we all be friends with each other. 